0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I
1: want to start this morning with a brief progress report on the health of GCA. Tom and I know, because we came out of a large church in Los Angeles, and I was one of the people who used to do some of the financial work for that church, We came here knowing that there are a couple of times a year when churches hurt financially, when the giving takes a severe dip. And the two times of year that that happens is midsummer, usually because families are traveling and vacations and everything. And then every Christmas, right around the holidays, the giving always dips severely. And we watched that happen the first few years here at GCA now Tom does the money here at GCA I don't know what any individual gives but we do talk about the financial health of the church and if I say anything incorrect here Tom can correct me but this year Christmas came and went and didn't affect GCA negatively in the least I don't know if you know how remarkable that is, but churches everywhere, boy, they plan it in advance. They're giving campaigns for midsummer and for the Christmas time because they know it's coming. They know the dip in finances is coming. And GCA is still as healthy as we have ever been financially. We're still fine. The bills are paid. The wolf's away from the door. The folks on the internet have continued to give. And you all here have continued to give, and we're just fine. And I'm so happy to be able to say that. Because for 20 years, the experiment here at GCA has been, what happens if you just week by week feed people a steady diet of the word of God? What will happen to people if you take away all the falderol and the trappings of religion? What will happen if you just give them a steady diet of the word? And it turns out that what happens is people become Christians if you just give them the steady diet of the word of God. And as a consequence, in our 20-year history, I've never had to pound on you all about finances. For the folks on the internet, when was the last time you heard me preach a giving sermon? where I just pounded away at you and said we're going we're gonna to go off the internet or something bad's going to happen if you don't give and if you don't give right now. That's the way that so many churches ramp up their giving in the summer and in Christmas. And I'm just so very, very fortunate as a Bible teacher that you all have never made me do that. So I'm really just here to say thank you because once again you have freed me up to just preach the word of God and you haven't caused me the crisis of conscience where I have to stand up here and pick your pockets because our financial situation is so bad and instead of preaching the word of God I get up here and try to cajole your money out of you and I just I'm so appreciative of that for 20 years you've let me stand up here and just preach God's word so GCA is a very healthy, very alive church, and I am so glad to be able to say that because this morning we're going to talk about the dead church. (laughs) We are in Revelation chapter 3. Before we were so rudely interrupted by Christmas, New Year's, and viruses, we were teaching the seven churches And the letters to the seven churches. What Jesus has to say to the seven churches of Asia. Today we're going to talk about the church at Sardis. Let's start by reading these six verses. It's a short letter. To the angel or the messenger of the church of Sardis write this. He who has the seven spirits of God... And the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, that you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, What you have received and heard and keep it and repent. If therefore you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they walk with me in white for they are worthy He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Now, as we've done with each of these churches in each of these seven cities, We're going to talk a little bit of background, a little bit of history of the city, because the more you know about Sardis, the more you're going to understand Jesus' very particular and very exacting language in this letter. The city of Sardis is an ancient city. It was actually founded in the 12th century B.C., And it was really one of the oldest and most important cities in Asia. Sardis is about 32 miles from Pergamos, and it's about 27 miles from Philadelphia. Sardis, the word, means those escaping or that which remains. So the name and the message and the subsequent history of both that city and that church tell the story of a good start and a bad finish. It changes for the worst. Sardis has this name, this reputation, as if they were alive. They look like they're alive. People understand them to be alive, and yet Jesus says definitively, you're dead. Now, Sardis is actually originally a portion of a kingdom that was called Lydia. The kingdom of Lydia existed from about 1200 BC to about 546 BC. Lydia was one of the richest kingdoms in the ancient world. At its zenith, at its most powerful during the 7th century BC, it covered all of Western Anatolia, or what we know now as Asia Minor. Sardis was once the capital of very wealthy Lydia, the city of Sardis and its surrounding area was watered by a river that was known as the Pactolus River, and that river made the city fabulously wealthy when they found gold within the sand on the banks of the river, and so that city was known as the city of the golden sands, so we're talking about a really rich kingdom and then the capital of that really rich kingdom. And then on top of that, they find gold. And they're situated on the side of a mountain. So they are impregnable as well. Now, the most noteworthy king of Lydia was a guy who was known as Croesus, you may have heard The euphemism once upon a time, has has anybody ever heard the phrase, he's as rich as Croesus? Well, that's where that comes from. It's making reference to the historic king of Lydia who was fabulously wealthy. He ruled from about 560 to 547 BC. He is the first person to ever strike coins out of gold and silver. And in fact, it is the kingdom of Lydia that essentially invented money and the use of money as a means of trade. It was actually the father of Croesus, a guy named Aliates, who reigned from 610 to 560 BC. He actually minted and distributed the world's first coins But his coins were out of something that was called electrum, which was an alloy of gold and silver, but it was his son who decided that coins had to have intrinsic value within themselves, and so he made the coins of gold and silver. That's the kind of wealth we're talking about here. According to Herodotus, the historian, the Lydians were not only the first people to use gold and silver coins, but they were the first society to have permanent shops you know in Greek culture you could go to the Agora which was the marketplace and the Agora was always a set of stands and tables it was always temporary there would be different people doing the buying selling trading depending on the day that you were there but it was in Lydia that you saw your first stores which now we're just so accustomed to, but somebody at some point had to come up with that. Well, it was the folks there in Sardis and in Lydia who did that. You may recall that Israel in their history fell to a succession of kingdoms. First, they were conquered by Babylon, at least the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was first conquered by the Assyrians, but then the southern kingdom was conquered by Babylon. And then Babylon was conquered by the Medo-Persians. And then the Medo-Persians were conquered by the Greeks. Well, as that was going on there in the Middle East, that was the same thing that happened to Lydia. It's the same thing that Sardis went through. So in 546 BC, Lydia became a province of the Persian Empire, which then fell to Alexander the Great. So it became a Greek empire, And then that Hellenistic dynasty ruled from the city of Pergamum. They considered Pergamum to be their capital after the death of Lysimachus, who was one of the generals of Alexander the Great, if you recall. One of Lysimachus's officers then took control of the city in 282 BC. Lydia was then acquired by the Attalid dynasty of Pergamum, But you may recall, we've already talked about this, that the last king of Pergamum, in order to avoid warfare and the ravages and the spoils of warfare with Rome, actually decided to just give the kingdom to Rome. The last king of Pergamum just willed the whole kingdom over to Rome. So in 133 BC, Sardis became part of the Roman province of Asia. Okay, so that's some of the background and the history of it. Why, why was Sardis so valuable? Outside of the fact that it had sands of gold, why was it a city that people wanted to control? Well, it's because it was built on the side, on a plateau, 1,500 feet over the plain. So it was only approachable one way, in order to get to it. There was only one narrow passage that could get you there. So that made it really easy to defend because any army that wanted to fight against the city had to come up through that narrow passage. And so it was easy to ambush them. Then at the base of that rocky cliff, was the river that I mentioned earlier, the Pactolus River, and as a consequence, there was another half of the city that was built there on the plain. But the fortress itself was impregnable. Army after army tried to conquer it. And it was the Persians who, according to best history and legend, the Persians had a couple of soldiers who were just really good at climbing And they went up the rocky crags. They put themselves into the crevices of that hillside and managed to climb themselves all the way up to that city and open the gates. And lo and behold, the city fell to the Persians. Now, you would think logically that once that had happened, The people who were living there in Sardis would say, you know, now that we're aware of that, we should be more careful. We should watch more carefully. And yet, they didn't. And yet, they remained satisfied with their own wealth, remained satisfied that their walls were going to protect them. They became satisfied. In other words, they rested on their laurels rather than being awake and paying attention, and consequently, the Greeks came in and conquered the city. And you know how they did it? The exact same way as the Persians. They climbed up the wall and conquered the city. So in other words, the city of Sardis rose and fell and rose and fell over and over again, and yet never caught on that they needed to be awake. They needed to pay attention. So Sardis was attacked and conquered twice because of the arrogance of the city, the wealth of the city. Their pride, their overconfidence in their own resources took its toll. And so since they believed that their city was impregnable, the guards became careless and the city fell. Even after the surprise attack of the Persians in 549 B.C., that nearly destroyed the city and yet the military there in Sardis did not perceive the need for vigilance for vigilance or vigilance either of those is fine they didn't perceive the need for vigilance or reinforcements and so then they're conquered by the greeks and then the country was also subject to frequent earthquakes and Sardis was completely destroyed by an earthquake in AD 17 so now when was John writing? 92, 96 AD, he's on the Isle of Patmos. He is writing to a city that was once fabulous and glorious and was now laying in ruins, and the church along with it. Sardis never really fully recovered from that earthquake in AD 17, and it was only partially rebuilt. So when the epistle was actually written by John and actually sent to the city of Sardis, the city was waning in its prestige and in its glory. And yet, we're told by historians that despite the fact that this fabulous city had fallen to so many different enemies and finally was felled by an earthquake and was never really rebuilt to its former glory, nevertheless, The Sardians, the people who live in Sardis, they are not Sardines, the the people who live in Sardis still had a reputation of being arrogant and still believing, still living on their former glory. So they still had a name, a reputation, as if they were alive. And yet when John was writing to them, the city was essentially dead. In 1402, Tamerlane, who was a Muslim Turk, fully destroyed the city, and then it was never rebuilt. Okay, so let's talk about the religion that was going on there in Lydia and in Sardis. Because as we have seen, as we've talked about each of these individual cities and these individual churches, they were dealing with a society that was steeped in idols and in idol worship, and with each of these successive cities, we've seen that the gods that they used to worship and the way that they turned from God to worship the works of their own hands, uh, those gods are still alive and well today. They've been modified a little bit. They've changed names, but this one's going to be easy. Let me tell you about the worship that was going on there in Lydia the Lydian religion was essentially polytheistic, which means that they had several gods that they worshipped, but their chief gods had something very important in common. Are you familiar with Sibele? Do you know that name? She is the mother goddess. Sibele is always represented as a woman with a couple of lions on either side of her, sometimes leopards. Which is why, to this day, women and cats still have this symbiotic relationship that's inexplicable. Never mind. I just, I just. Sabele was the mother goddess. In fact, she was known as the magna mater. In other words, she was the chief mother. No temple worshipper who came to worship Sabele, no temple worshipper was allowed to approach the temple unless they had clean garments. If your garments were soiled, if they were not white, you could not come into her temple. But then, ironically, what went on in her temple was tremendously debased. She had orgies like those of Dionysius, and she practiced festivals in her honor, which became, like the spring feasts, became fertility feasts. So sins of the foulest impurity were all committed in her temple, and yet to come to the temple, you had to look like you were clean and white. You had to have clean robes. Also, the other goddess is one that we're already familiar with because we've already looked at Ephesus, Diana, Artemis. Ephesus had a temple to Diana. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, the people shouted to drive Paul out. Well, she was also very dominant in that area. And in fact, the stories of King Croesus include the fact that he brought fabulous offerings to the temple in, of all places, Sardis. So in Sardis, there is this worship of a mother god and the worship of Diana, a female god. So their chief gods are goddesses in opposition to the God who represents himself as being male and having a son who is male. But importantly, that mother goddess, that Sabele worship, the worship of the Mater, is alive and well to this very day. We just call her Mary. I'll leave that where it sits. Notice then, as we read through the letter, to the church at Sardis, this Sardis has no Nicolaitans, no Balaam, no Jezebel, no mention of any persecution, because, well, you don't persecute a dead church. You don't persecute a church that the world can get along fine with. You don't persecute a church that's not doing anything that the world objects to. Well, that starts to give you some indication of why Jesus would say they were dead. I mean, really, how do we define a dead church? What constitutes a dead church? Some people would say it's the lack of the gifts of the Spirit. You know, that you have to have the obvious gifts of the Spirit. If you don't have that, your church is dead. Or other people might say, I just heard this recently. Lack of growth is evidence of a dead church. The phrase I heard was living things reproduce. So if your church is not actively reproducing itself, if you're not involved in church planting and church growth, then your church is dead. Is that what constitutes a dead church? Is it bad behavior? Is there bad behavior within the church and therefore it's not a real church? Well, you got to do is look at the church at Corinth and look at everything that Paul said was going on there, and yet Paul never said that Corinth was not a church. Or is it really a matter of doctrinal differences? You know, this goes on a lot on social media. People who hold to a particular doctrinal position, so then they say anybody who does not hold to that position is not safe. That's a dead church because you don't hold to the doctrine the way that we do. So is that what constitutes a dead church? You can find all of those examples on social media and people pointing fingers and saying you're in a dead church because you don't have tongue talkers or because you don't have obvious growth within your church where you're replicating yourself or Or because you have a doctrinal difference with me and I'm the one who has the truth and you don't agree with me and so that makes you dead. What constitutes a dead church? When Jesus says you're dead, you're dead. Because he is the prince of life. He is the one who is busy building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And therefore, if he the master and leader and head of the church, he is the savior. He is the redeemer. He is the one who can make up for and forgive whatever other failings a church body has. But when he's the one who says you're dead, you're dead. The church in Sardis at one time had so much wealth, so much power. In fact, So the story goes that they were one of the earliest churches to be converted by the preaching of John himself. So they started really, really well. But they're also one of the first churches to just completely apostatize, fall apart. And Jesus removed them completely from history. So they started well and they ended bad. So what are we going to say about that? Are we going to say that's some failing within them, that they just didn't do it right, or they didn't do it well enough? Or are we going to say that the God who is absolutely sovereign, who wanted to teach his church through the ages, all the different kinds of churches, and that's the way we've been approaching these seven churches of Asia, we've been approaching them as kinds of churches so that we can be educated by it is he sovereign enough to also create and destroy a church in order to teach us through all these centuries what a dead church is? I would argue he's actually that sovereign. Or else you would have to explain how it is that Jesus left it up to some people who then failed miserably enough that he said, I can't save you and then gave up on them. Instead, I would argue that the church in Sardis existed historically for the very purpose of teaching the church through all these centuries that if you are not wakeful, if you are not careful, if you're not paying attention, then you're going to fall, just like the history of the city of Sardis, just like the history of of Lydia. So now let's look at the letter. That's all introduction. I think now we can dig into what Jesus actually has to say. To the angel or the messenger of the church in Sardis, write this. At the beginning of each of these letters, we've seen that Jesus takes some characteristic of how he was introduced at the beginning of the book of Revelation. He takes some characteristic and he picks it out, points it out, ...to the church and says, I'm this one. In this case, he says, I'm the one who has the seven spirits of God. Now, why would he say that? Because clearly, he's the one who is the giver of the spirit. He's the one who also is in charge of the church. And whether the church receives the spirit, whether the church embodies the spirit of God, or whether the church fails... So he points out right away that he's the one who's in charge because not only does he have the seven spirits of God, which we have already looked at out of Isaiah, but that he also has the seven stars, the seven messengers of the churches, which means he's in charge of the spirit and he's in charge of the messenger. So he's the one who controls whether a church Remains, whether it abides, whether it grows, whether it's productive, or whether it turns out to just be dead. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this I know. How often have we seen Jesus say that? I know. I know the difficulties you're going through, I know your hardships, I know your persecutions. I know. And I have pointed that out every single time to say, Jesus knows. Jesus is intimately aware of what you're going through, what the church is going through, what the world is going through. He knows the situation that he has planted his church in. And he knows whether the activity of the church is living up to the spirit of God, whether it is living up to his standard for a church, whether it is living up to his expectation of a church or not, because he says, I know, in this case, I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. I know how you're acting. I know how you're behaving. I know how you're thinking. And you have this reputation in the world As if you are alive, anybody looking at you from the outside would say, that's a living church. And yet Jesus from the inside, the one who's in charge of the messengers of the churches, the one who's in charge of the spirit in the church, he's the one who says, even though your reputation is that you're alive, you are nevertheless dead. Is it fair then to say that since this is a lesson on different types of churches. Is it fair then to say that there are churches in the world today who have a reputation as if they are alive, but are in fact dead? Yes. And from the outside, anybody looking at them would say, just like the church of Sardis, Sardis was so wealthy. That's why I stressed that history. Sardis was so very wealthy and protected and resting on their laurels. And they thought that they were just fine and they could point back at the fact that they were established by John the Apostle and they could just say, we know we're just fine, we don't have to stay awake, we don't have to work, we don't have to pay attention to our activity, instead we'll just rest here and say, well, we're the church and we're, we're fine, we're protected, we have a lot of money, we're good. That's the church that Jesus says, you're dead. And so there are churches in the world at this very moment who have all the trappings of religious activity, who have all the demonstration of wealth, who have all of the trappings that people would drive by, look at them, go to their website, whatever else, and say, oh, that looks like a vital church. The question is, Is the spirit of God there? Is the word of God going forward? And what is the messenger to that church saying? Because Jesus said, I'm the one who's in charge of the messengers and the spirit. And there are churches that look for all intents and purposes as if they are alive and vital. And Jesus says, you're a dead church. I am editing myself, my own opinions, really hard right now because it would be so easy to talk about dead churches, but I won't because I will begin to rant and rave, and you don't want that. Verse 2, so now Jesus tells them because they are dead, because of the deadness of spirit, because of the inactivity in the church because dead people are inert they don't move they're not active he says to them be on the alert pay attention wake up pay attention be on the alert and strengthen those things that remain which are about to die you are such a dying church that all you have are little glimmers of life left within you and whatever those last little pieces of life are within you, take a hold of those, strengthen those things, pay attention to those things. That's where you should be putting your emphasis instead of emphasizing how rich you once were, how protected you have been through your life, your lack of persecution, your, your lack of being infiltrated by Balaam's and Jezebel's having no Nicolaitans bothering you. You just think that you're safe and you're secure and you're rich and you're fine and you're dead. And so grab a hold of the last little bit of what you still remember, what you have been taught, what John actually said to you. Grab a hold of that, nourish that, feed that. That's the only way there's any hope for you. But even that last little bit is dying within you. Why? Because I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. In other words, you started well, but then just like the entire city in its gradual decay, starting out so rich, so wealthy, so well to do, and then finally ending up a heap of ruins, Jesus draws the equation between the city and the church and says you're becoming that kind of heap of ruins because the way you started is different than the way you are ending. So be wakeful, literally, is what he said. Be watching. Strengthen those things that actually still existed before I roused you up because they're about to die because I haven't found any of your works to be complete or to be fulfilled, or to be fully done before God. So remember here's his instruction to them, verse 3 so remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent this is one of those moments you know that I, I don't do a whole lot of Greek here, I try to only refer to the Greek when I think it's going to be educational and helpful for you to understand it. But in that one single sentence, there are several Greek tenses that are actually really instructive. The phrase, you've received, remember that which you've received is actually just a perfect indicative active. All that really means is the perfect tense is an action that was completed in the past, but it has continuing results. The indicative mood is just an action or event that is real, that he can point to and say that. That's an objective fact, and the voice is active, meaning that the subject, the person, is the one who is acting. He's not being acted upon, in which case he'd be passive. The only reason that you need to remember any of that is that the phrase then, remember what you have received, means that it happened at some point in the past. John taught you these things. My own apostle came and taught you these things, and you did receive it, and you heard it, or you did hear it. And the tense changes to the aorist indicative active, which means it's an action that happened at some definite period in history. At some point in the past, you received it when John taught it to you. The continuing result is you heard it. Now, the reason that's important is Jesus just said, you're responsible for what you heard. You're responsible for what you've received. I sent it to you. I sent it to you via John. You actually did receive it. You are the recipients of the preaching of the gospel. And as a consequence, you're actually responsible for what you have heard And then he does it again, a present indicative active when he says, so then keep it, hold on to that because you're responsible for it. You did receive it and you have heard it. And then the word repent is an aorist imperative. There's our indicative and our imperative again. The indicative is you're responsible. You received it. You heard it. As a consequence, actively keep it. But then that aorist imperative active means repent, but do it once and for all. Stop doubting. Stop overthinking. Stop double thinking. Repent, change your ways, and stay changed. You did receive it. I did send it to you. As a consequence, you heard it. That makes you responsible for what you have heard. You do know it. Therefore, cling to it, keep it, hold on to it, and change your ways. If you continue in the way you're going right now, you're going to end up eternally dead, not just a dead church, but you're going to be condemned by God himself for all of eternity. Therefore, change permanently, a one-time change, a one-time repentance Hold on to that last little bit that you've got, because if you don't pay attention, if you're not alert, if you don't wake up, if you don't do that, I'll come on you like a thief, and you will not know what hour I'm going to come upon you. Okay, now we have to talk about that thief in the night language for a moment. Because that phrase, thief in the night, has been bandied about so often, there have even been books written called Thief in the Night. I think there was a movie, Thief in the Night. That was a a rapture book. And get this right, the phrase thief in the night in the Bible never refers to the rapture, never once. Instead, every time you see the phrase thief in the night, what you're looking at is bad news. It's Jesus saying, I'm going to come upon you at a time that you don't expect it, and I'm coming upon you in judgment. It's never a good thing. It's never a good thing. Look, if you're laying in bed, Micah, you're laying in bed with April, and you hear a noise in your apartment. And she says, don't worry, honey, I'll get it. No, that doesn't happen. She says, Micah, someone's in the apartment. Go check. Go look. Is that a happy time for you? Is that a good moment for you? Is that, yay, yippee, we have a visitor. I wasn't expecting company. No, instead, it's bad news. A thief has broken into your house. And so Jesus creates that exact scenario In Matthew 24, starting at verse 42, he says, Therefore, be on the alert, be awake, pay attention, because you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this that if the head of the household had known at what time the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert. I would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is if Micah knew that there was going to be a thief at three o'clock in the morning, he'd be awake waiting for him. And he would not allow the thief to break in. But the whole idea of thief in the night is you don't know what time. You don't know when that's going to happen. So here's Jesus saying, I'm going to come on you in judgment the way a thief comes on you. You're not going to be looking for it. You're not going to be prepared for it. For this reason, says verse 44 of Matthew 24, for this reason you must always be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. Is that pretty plain? Is that pretty obvious? That the thief in the night language is bad news. Thief in the night is tribulation language. Thief in the night is day of the Lord language. 1 Thessalonians 5 says this. Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, says, As to the periods and the times, that's the NASB rendering, you know, it's chronos, kairos, to the times, to the seasons, says the King James. As to the particular moments in time when I do particular things, well, brothers and sisters, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord is coming just like a thief in the night. Well, there you go. You can't find a more plain explanation than that. The day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night when you don't expect it, when you're not looking for it. And then Paul elucidates that and says, while they are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And then he draws a differentiation and says, but you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that that day would overtake you as a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We're not of the night, and we're not of the darkness, so then let's not sleep as others do. Let us be alert, and let us be sober. So Paul's theology is understanding that Christ and the day of the Lord and the tribulation and all this bad stuff is going to come on the world when they're not expecting it. They're busy marrying, giving in marriage, doing their things, going to their jobs, trading, selling. They don't see it, and then sudden destruction comes on them. Jesus likens that to a thief in the night breaking in when you don't see him coming. So it's very bad news. It's the language of judgment coming when you don't expect it. Paul goes on and says, For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who are drunk, get drunk at night. But because we're of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation for God. Here's his whole point. For God has not destined us for wrath. So thief in the night language is day of the Lord and wrath. You got that? And then he says, but we, believers in Christ, the church, we're not appointed to that wrath. And therefore, be awake. Pay attention. Be sober. Why am I belaboring this point? Because that's the same thing Jesus has been saying to Sardis over and over. Wake up. Be awake. Pay attention. And I'm going to come on you like a thief in the night, and that is bad news. 2 Peter 3.10 sums it up perfectly and says, but the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be destroyed. Jesus says to the church at Sardis, wake up, strengthen the things that remain which are about to die For I have not found your deeds full or complete in the sight of my God. So remember, therefore, what you have received, what you have heard, cling to it, keep it, and repent, change. If, therefore, you will not wake up, I will come on you like a thief in the night. And you will not know the hour that I will come upon you. And then there is this really, really likable, but, I really like it when the Bible does that, but, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Okay, Jesus can say that knowing full well what he's going to teach John in Revelation 19. He hasn't described what we call Revelation 19 yet, but Jesus is so sure what the end result is going to be that he can speak of it as white-robed future. In fact, if you would, somebody look up Revelation 19.8. And we're going to understand what those white robes are. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. As I told you earlier, goddess worship within Sardis required clean robes. You couldn't go in and worship without clean robes. So Jesus here says the ones who remain faithful to me. You're going to walk with me in clean robes, and now we're going to find out where those clean robes come from. Tom, you got that? Revelation 19:8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Listen to what Jesus just did. This is so brilliant. He said, I have noticed your deeds. I've seen your deeds. I know you have a name that you're alive, but you're actually dead. But I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. They are not full yet in the sight of my God. Your deeds need to be complete before God. Are are your deeds complete yet? Shane, are you willing to stand before God and say, Here's all my deeds. Here's my righteous deeds. Here's everything I've done except me on the basis of what I've done. You willing to do that? No, nobody wants to do that, especially because Isaiah says all your best righteousnesses are filthy rags. So you've got nothing you can take to God. And here's a church that does not have the righteous deeds that they need to stand before God. So where do they get them? Jesus says here, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they're going to walk with me in white for they are worthy. How do they become worthy? How do they get the white robes? Tom just told us at the marriage supper of the lamb, God gives them the white robes, which is the righteous deeds of the saints. How are your deeds made righteous? Christ himself has to give you, grant you, impute to you his own righteousness so that God will accept you on the basis of the righteous deeds that only Christ alone could do. And Christ knows that and knows the marriage supper of the Lamb teaching that is going to come up, it hasn't yet with John, is going to come up in what we know as Revelation 19, and so he can speak forward of it and say, now there are some people as Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and then talk about the white garments that they're going to receive. The thing I love about all this, and I know I'm belaboring it, but the thing that I really love about this is, this is a dead church, this is a dying church. This is a church that even Jesus says you're dead. And yet Jesus says I still have some of my own there. I still have some that belong to me. And they're going to walk with me in righteousness. They're going to walk with me in white robes. Which means Jesus can find his own no matter where they are no matter what situation they're in even if they're in a dying city or a dying decaying church Jesus can find his own and i love that amen you have a few people in sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy and he who overcomes will be clothed in white garments, in white raiments. That's exactly what Tom just read to us. They will be walking with Christ in glory, in white raiments. How do they get there? How do they get those raiments? Because Jesus himself attributes his own righteousness to them, clothes them in white robes, which is the righteousness of saints. And then he makes this very positive statement that unfortunately people have attempted to turn negative. But listen to how positive this statement is. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white raiments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Okay, it's real easy to see the second half of that sentence as a real positive. I mean, my goodness, Jesus is going to profess your name before his God and before the angels? You certainly want to be part of that. That's good news, yes? Yes. Okay, so then, so is the phrase just before it. The phrase just before it is, I will not erase his name from the book of life. I cannot tell you how many Arminian commentators and writers I have read who glom onto that phrase and say, see, Jesus can erase names from the Lamb's book of life. Because he wouldn't say, I'm not going to, unless he actually could. It has to be an option for him to erase or not erase. And just because he says he's not going to erase, doesn't mean that he doesn't have the ability. Therefore, they leap to the conclusion that Jesus must actually do that. He must actually erase names from the Lamb's book of life. As if God is up there in heaven with some great eternal eraser, erasing names and saying, I tried to save them. I mean, I really gave it a shot. I really tried to save them. I just didn't know they'd be this bad. I didn't know they would do that. I didn't know they would rebel that much. And therefore, even though I wrote their name in the Lamb's Book of Life and gave them to my son, even though I implanted my own Holy Spirit inside them, even though my son died to pay the sufficient price for their sins, nevertheless, Gabriel, give me an eraser. I got to get them out of the Book of Life. Well, that's just untenable what Jesus says in a positive sense here is you're in the book of life to stay you're in the book of life for good and the only person who could potentially take you out is me and I'm telling you I won't do it that's a really positive statement especially when it's joined with not only will I not erase you from the Lamb's book of eternal life I will also profess your name before my God and his angels. Remarkably good news. Remarkably good news to individuals in a dead church. Mm -hmm. That makes it especially good news. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here's what I can tell you for sure. Christ is in charge of his church. Christ is the life giver, and therefore he's the one who can pronounce a church to be living or dead. It's up to him. But even within a dead church, he never loses those that were eternally given to him. And even though they are in the midst of an ecclesia, a community that is dying away, Christ can nevertheless give them white robes of eternal righteousness so that they can walk with him forever in the righteousness that only he can provide. That, just as plainly, just as didactically, just as clearly as can be, that's election. That's Christ saying, I'll preserve my own. I'll take care of my own. I will preserve my own even in the midst of a dead city, even in the midst of a dead church. I know who my own are. I won't give up on them. I won't take their name out of the Lamb's Book of Life, and I will profess their name before God and his angels because I will give them a white robe of righteousness so that they can dwell in righteousness with me forever despite the fact that the church they're in is a dead church. And I really like both the sovereignty and the individuality of what Christ has said here to them. He has said, I'm sovereign, I'm in charge, and your church is dead. But he has also said, I'm sovereign, I'm in charge, I will save my own. That's really good news in the midst of a really harsh
0: letter.